Hello and welcome to Scana Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am Andrei Karenkov, one of your hosts. I finished my PhD in AI at Stanford recently, and I'm now working at a generative AI startup. And I'm your other host, Jeremy Harris. I'm the co-founder of Gladstone AI, which is an AI safety company. Um, we do a bunch of work on technical safety and AI policy. So I guess you've heard that bit before. And speaking of uh, AI policy and safety, just yesterday, you know, compared to recording at least, we uh, released our long-awaited yes. X-Risk uh, <laughs> discussion episode. So hopefully people enjoy that. Uh, we haven't, that was really the first sort of discussion, non-news episode we've done, and it was a lot of fun. So if you'd like to see more of that, you can uh, let us know, uh, email contact at lastweekin.ai or, you know, give us a review or comment on YouTube or whatever. You can DM me, uh, although I don't always check my Twitter or X. Uh, so yeah, hopefully people like it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually it was, I, I thought it was a lot of fun to do. Um, definitely down to do other things like that in the future. So, uh, for sure. Um, by the way, when we released that, I, I got, um, so a friend of mine sent me an email saying it was very kind of macabre sort of humor. He was like, uh, hey, happy Judgment Day, I think it is, from the Terminator franchise. I've never seen the Terminator movies, uh, full disclosure, but apparently there was some, you know, I guess August something. Oh. Is, yeah, so so very, we almost got it on Terminator Judgment Day, which would have been <laughs> so good. But <laughs> It would have been. And uh, before we move on to the rest of our podcast, we are going to do an ad, our uh, first one in a while. Uh, but unlike most marketing, this is for a thing that we would probably promote anyway, right? For, yeah, for unlike, free. Unlike most of the things that we would advertise on this program, we actually like this product. Um, I know. Unlike, <laughs> uh, anyway, so the thing we are being paid to promote is the Super Data Science Podcast uh, with host John Cron, who we have had as a guest uh, a couple weeks ago. And this is a podcast about data science and it seems to be the most listened one it's the 12 technology podcast globally and yeah there's a lot of talk about machine learning ai there's over 700 episodes released twice weekly interviews with you know all sorts of very interesting people so yeah if you want to hear from people who work in ai who do ai stuff in addition to the ai news we cover that is a great option yeah, and if you listen to the episode that John was on, you'll get a sense for like why this is such a good podcast. I've been on it a couple of times. Like his questions are always on point. His um, his head is always beautifully, beautifully shaved, and uh, it really comes across in the audio. You can you can hear the resonance of his voice from his Chrome Dome as his knowledge radiates out to the audience. Uh, but no, in seriousness, I almost feel guilty taking their money for doing this ad because I actually listen to his podcast. I am a fan of it. I think you should definitely go and check that out. Uh, it's a lot of fun and very informative interviews with like amazing people. Apparently, John also listens to this. Uh, so clearly good taste. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not going to say anything bad if he's listening to this in the shower, yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Well, with that done, uh, just one more thing before we get to the news. We do want to give a quick shout out to listener comments and reviews. So you had a couple new reviews on Apple Podcast. As always, it's fun to see. Uh, there is a review from Validen256, who actually appreciates the focus on safety concerns and X-Risk. So that's good to hear. Hopefully you enjoy the X-Risk episode there's uh another review by just gibberish uh that said they wish the episodes were twice as long which i oh think i don't know that i could do that uh yeah, that, stamina. <laughs> i know i know and yeah a uh, couple other ones rajesh khan also thank you for review uh it seems like you can listen to us on runs, uh, so that's cool. Exercise your brain and, and your body at the same time. And one last one for Smart Aces. Fantastic podcast. Love to see it. Uh, and yeah, it it's from someone who's new to the field of AI, and they say that they gain some understanding. And that's kind of what we hope to achieve, is to not be super technical so that anyone can dive in. So happy to hear that feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I found out recently that my uncle sometimes listens to the podcast. And so um, that's that's kind of cool. I feel yeah. like I don't want to disappoint people now. Whereas before <laughs> we were just shooting the shit, it's like, no, now <laughs> smart uh, aces, no. we've got smart aces, we've got gibberish. Don't want to disappoint all these these folks. Thank you guys. Thank you. Devad done. A quick preview of what we got on this episode. So we've got some new announcements uh, that are pretty major on the tooling and app side. We're going to be talking about ChatGPT and NVIDIA and a lot of fundings for business. A couple major open source stories. A whole bunch of research that is kind of all over the place really. Some policy and safety, nothing too huge going on, but some kind of important uh, smaller stories and just one story about synthetic media and deepfakes. So, Lots of chips, I noticed, eh? A lot of chips, as has been the case for the last few months. So we'll talk all about NVIDIA, as we often do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And starting with tools and apps, we have Google's Duet AI is now available in Gmail, Docs, and more for $30 a month. So Google is rolling out the Duet AI Assistant, which is basically their version of Microsoft's Copilot, just sort of a general branding for AI features that they have integrated into their software. And yes, yeah, so Google is rolling that out across all of its workspace apps, including Gmail, Drive, Slides, and uh, Docs. And that is uh, $30 per user for large organizations. So this is for their um, kind of workplace uh, software suite that companies can pay for. Uh, it will be accessible through a separate menu or by asking for help within emails and documents. Uh, and yeah, it's a pretty big story, I think, for Google, right? Yeah, pretty big story for generative AI too. Like this is Google sort of like stepping up to the plate, responding to obviously Microsoft's Copilot that was very, very comparable software, essentially Microsoft's version of this uh, that launched uh, now a few weeks, maybe even a few months ago. And um, yeah, so seeing Google step up, this is all consistent with what Google has said is sort of the race they're being forced to play here ever since OpenAI launched ChatGPT and Microsoft, um, you know, uh, 
uh, Satya Nadella, their, their CEO, famously came out and said he wanted to make Google dance when it came to generative AI. And this is definitely that uh, starting to happen. Google's being forced to rush a lot of these things. Um, well, maybe maybe rush a lot of these things out of production. There certainly has been a fire kind of lit under them to, to do this stuff. So a lot of the features, again, seem like stuff we've sort of seen before in Microsoft Copilot. Um, you know, you can ask this tool to like draft a you know an email for you or to generate some slides based on a descript text description of what you want. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, just a, a more complete suite coming to um, well the Google uh, uh, what is it called there the the Google, not Google Drive but the Google Office not Google Office Google Suite Google what, what Workspace. Google Workspace. Everybody's yes. got a suite or a workspace or something. Google Workspace. I actually use Google Workspace. I'm looking forward to uh, testing this out. But um. Yeah, me too. And yeah, as you said, uh, Microsoft rolled out their version of this a month and a half ago, roughly, July 18. And it was also priced uh, $30 per user uh, per month for this organization plan. So it's interesting to see that sort of seem to be the thing the pricing that's back that and i mean that's higher than uh chat plus at 20 dollars. so the economics here i think and i would be very curious to see how they came to that number and and how profitable it would be per user uh ultimately yeah i mean i guess the i'm, I'm, I'm curious what i'll think once i start playing with it but in a way, it's like ChatGPT, assuming that you know Bard or whatever they're using for the language modeling in the back end is as good as ChatGPT, but it's something like ChatGPT plus a bunch of a bunch of other ancillary stuff. And maybe just because it's easier to use and it's integrated in all your apps, you know, maybe you could argue that's where a lot of the value is coming from. But uh, yeah, I think we're we're going to learn a lot about the price points here in the next few months. Maybe these will change and. Uh, and like you said, the, the computational cost of running generative AI, right? So high. So you, you in a way, can't get away without, without some kind of significant cost on the end user. Yeah. So if you're at a company that's using Google Workspace, you can now, I guess, uh, request this uh, Duet AI. You know, make your company pay for you to be able to use AI to be more productive, which I think at least personally, I've definitely been doing more of over time, or at least a decent amount of in recent months using ChatGPT and uh, GitHub Copilot and kind of integrating it into my process in ways that I found really, yeah, it does speed things up and, and make some task less uh, boring. Yeah. Next story. Pose new desktop app lets you use all the AI chatbots in one place. So Poe is the AI chatbot platform created by Quora, which is a website for question answering. And they have released a Mac app uh, with the additional features of talking to different uh, AI chatbots. So you can essentially, instead of going to different websites for Bard, and for ChatGPT and so on, it's a little program to talk to simultaneous bots or, or to have um, some other things like multiple ongoing conversations. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see this uh, attempt, I think. Uh, it's different from what we've seen before and it's i do wonder like is there going to be value in having uh all bots in one place kind of platform i'm not sure 
Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see Quora doing this, right? Because when we we've talked before about the kinds of companies that are at risk in the context of you know ChatGPT and more broadly kind of the generative AI move, you do start to think about platforms, question answering platforms like Quora. Obviously, Stack Overflow is a technical version of this sort of platform, and you do see technical questions asked on Quora too. And so I could see this being like a kind of a long shot hail mary play here. Just to try to see if actually we can hitch our wagon to this new uh, this new generative AI movement, um, because obviously just sitting there and waiting for generative AI to eat your core business model isn't really an option. But uh, but yeah, no, it's an interesting question, and you know the the subscription model again here we see that similar price point, you know, nineteen ninety nine a month or two hundred dollars a year. Like that's again in the same ballpark. We're talking Chat GPT. We're talking. Uh, we're talking, um, you know, Microsoft Copilot, that sort of thing. So, sort of interesting to to see people settle around that price point there too. Yeah. Uh, so, if you like to sample different bots, like hop around, they have a sort of kind of browser, really, uh, where you can pick and choose. Uh, you can look at popular bots, at new bots, uh, and there's not just Bard, not just ChatGPT, but a lot of these kind of custom. Things like whatever GPT or Crime View emojis. I think I don't know various seemingly just more for fun things. So um, yeah, I think personally, I don't know that I've been uh, interested in things like character AI or this, where you can hop between different bots. But it does seem like maybe a lot of people are getting more interested in that sort of thing. Moving on to our lightning round, we have developers are now using AI for text to music apps. So, I mean, basically what it sounds like, there's um, this app called Playlist AI, um, and uh, it, it's developer Brett Bowman, or Bauman, I guess, launched a new app called Songburst, and it helps you generate music clips based on user prompts. Um, so it's essentially like, this is opening up a whole new avenue for this sort of thing. I mean, I think this is going to be ubiquitous. We're sort of having the, maybe, arguably, the sort of like mid-journey moment, the stability AI moment for uh, for music. It's going to be interesting to see with all of the copyright questions floating around in the in the background. You know, these these apps are targeting creators that need copyright-free music for their their videos or their podcasts. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see like whether that assumption actually holds that these things are copyrightable, depending on where the data is coming from. There's all this due diligence you can imagine having to do in the back end to actually make sure that indeed the music that's generated by these things is not subject to copyright. We're seeing OpenAI right now struggle with that same question as the New York Times starts to tell them, for example, no, you know, you can't you train your, your bots on our stuff. There's copyright protections. There's like all kinds of stuff. So anyway, I'm curious about that dimension of this, but certainly, you know, we're going to a lot of interesting artistic expression, if nothing else, from uh, from this category of new apps. Yeah, this article kind of covers that whole topic and the trend towards it. It also mentions another app, Cassette AI by Akil Tulani, which can generate music samples up to three minutes long. And yeah, this really shows how for texting music, we're sort of at the like one year ago stage where text to image was. Uh, like one year ago, there were starting to be apps and software to generate images from text, and it was still not quite there, but getting really good. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> what trajectory you're seeing now with music. 
Next, Yahoo Mail debuts AI enhancements for our smarter inbox. So similar to Gmail, now Yahoo Mail has a bunch of AI tools. There's a new one called Shopping Saver uh, that looks for unused gift cards, discount codes, and so on. Uh, there are other uh, AI better features. There's also enhancements to things like the writing assistant that suggests replies, similar to what Google has. There's also search, there's message summaries. So yeah, pretty much I think the sort of thing we can expect in any email tool going forward. Yeah, it's also one of those things that makes me wonder how competitive something like this is destined to be in the long term. You know, we, we've talked about this idea, right, that like the companies, especially when it comes to generative AI, companies that own as much of the stack as possible are able to take advantage of cost savings across the whole stack from, from the processing power, you know, the compute, the GPUs, all the way to the front end, the models, that sort of thing. Um, Yahoo obviously is not in the category of company that has access to that full stack. And they are competing directly with Google, with Gmail, with Microsoft that do have that full stack capability. And so ultimately, like the economics here, at least to me on the surface, I could be wrong, but they don't look great for, you know, competing with the quality that you might expect from big rollouts of, you know, Google language models or Microsoft or OpenAI language models. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see, like, how do the smaller companies like Yahoo, the, the mail providers, the, you know, Sympatico or whatever, like things we have up in Canada even, compete with some of the big guys now as AI, generative AI, becomes a bigger and bigger part of just email on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, interestingly, Yahoo is actually deploying this on Google's cloud AI platform and tool. So this is sort of happening via Google. Uh, and it seems like a big win for Google Cloud AI. Yeah. Uh, Yahoo, as far as I know, is still a big email player. This is still in beta, so you can uh, request uh, sign up and get access. Um, yeah, nice to see more AI and tools people use. And up next, we have South Korea's Naver launches generative AI services. So uh, this is a company that like totally understandable if you've never heard of them before. Uh, if you've been following generative AI since like the GPT-3 era back in 2020, you might actually recognize the name. So Naver for context, it's not a super app in the like conventional sense. Uh, it's not like WeChat in China, for example, where like you do all your shopping and all your stuff in one app. Um, but it's kind of more like a Google of South Korea. They offer a whole bunch of disparate services. They started off as a search engine. So they've always had AI baked into their DNA. Way back in like, I think it was 2021, early 2021, they built this system called Hyperclova, which was like the, the fifth or maybe sixth like big LLM, big foundation model that came out after GPT-3. So they were really remarkably early to move on this. And they're announcing Hyperclova X, and that's going to basically provide generative AI-driven searches um, for users. So basically, we're going to start to see the rollout of the same kind of generative AI we've seen with Google Search, now where they're adding a bunch of descriptions of what you might be searching for and all that. Um, and they've got customized services as, as well for enterprise clients. So to some degree, this is making them even more like the Google of South Korea. They're doubling down in the same direction that we're seeing Google go. And there's a bunch of tools. They've got a chatbot application that they're calling uh, Clova X, which is all about web search, um, online shopping and navigation services, generative AI um, stuff all over the place uh, that, um, anyway, again, it all seems very Google-esque. And one 
interesting note that gets them even more into Google territory here when it comes to custom chips. Obviously, Google has their famous TPU. Well, Naver is now saying that they're going to jointly develop with Samsung, which is also, of course, based in South Korea, uh, new chips that are going to be you know, smarter, more efficient, all the usual stuff to support their development. So uh, really, really interesting to find them kind of doubling down on that Google path. The one difference, just in case, you know, you want to have a little bit of context about them, they tend to target niches that kind of like US and Chinese big companies haven't. So they look to develop like localized AI applications in countries that have like political sensitivities in say the Middle East, um, or non-English speaking countries that say would be kind of politically sketchy for Google to, to step into. That's kind of the main difference. But other than that, this really seems like that Google path. Yeah, and uh, they are starting better services for Clover X. Uh, so that's coming out and people are starting to get access. And it's, yeah, it's, I think maybe could be a big deal. They are looking to develop localized AI for countries in the Middle East or Asia, you know, where maybe Google and OpenAI are not quite as well-fitting, perhaps. So I'd be curious to see how Clovex compares to Bard and ChatGPT. Yeah, I mean, certainly they've you know they've been ahead of the curve before, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was surprisingly good, if that sentence even makes sense. Um, but for sure, they're <laughs> they're facing an uphill climb. On to applications and business, starting with OpenAI and their announcements introducing ChatGPT Enterprise. ChatGPT Enterprise allows customers to customize their AI model with their own data and connect it to existing uh, applications. And it offers a self-serve ChatGPT business option for smaller teams. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that's really for you know enterprise uh, business customers. There's advanced data analysis. There are different roles for data access. Uh, there's uh, very good security guarantees that you know are kind of industry standards. Um, yeah, clearly kind of an option that I was surprised hasn't been there yet and is now starting to roll out. And uh, I guess you can get in touch and they're starting to onboard people, but uh, it's still kind of a gradual process. Yeah, and, and boy, this is really interesting. I mean, to your point, it's been the elephant in the room for quite some time. When will OpenAI go enterprise? When will they start to allow people to you know, fine-tune their models on their own servers and, and do that sort of thing? Um, obviously, there are companies that depend on or that have depended on OpenAI not doing this, right? Cohere, quite famously, is kind of like the the enterprise version of OpenAI of ChatGPT, and so um, it'll be interesting to see how that competition unfolds. Like that's a that's a dangerous story arc, as far as I can tell, for Cohere, which does not have the kind of backing from a superscaler like Microsoft that OpenAI enjoys. Uh, but a couple of interesting facts that came out of OpenAI's announcement of this, like they said, since ChatGPT's launch, um, they've seen teams adopt it in over eighty percent of Fortune five hundred companies. That's based on just looking at corporate email usage, so signups with you know, corporate emails in the Fortune 500, still kind of interesting. Um, maybe not so surprising when you think about you know, the average person with a corporate email, I guess, just signing up and trying it. But yeah, pretty good coverage. Um, and yeah, as you said, I mean, a bunch of guarantees here. SOC 2 compliance is a big one for enterprise. Um, it's sort of like a, 
anyway, it's a, a, a standard that people tend to, to look for. I believe it's like a security standard. I should probably know that. But um, unlimited access to GPT-4 with no usage caps. That's another thing. Uh, High-speed performance for GPT-4 up to two times faster. Um, and anyway, a 32,000 token context window. Um, that's a pretty big deal. They're opening up there. So you can start to think about people using, you know, feeding it whole documents or, or packages of documents. Now, 32,000 tokens, is like, that's like half a book, right? So that's a lot of corporate context you can feed into this thing. And uh, they're also, anyway, highlighting a bunch of um, upcoming features. So they're promising to soon build uh, customization features that let you, as they put it, securely extend ChatGPT's knowledge with your company data by connecting the applications you already use. Um, and uh, anyway, a bunch of other kind of interesting things that are more domain specific. So versions of this tool that would help uh, data analysts, for example, specifically, like a data analyst co-pilot, if you will, uh, stuff like that. So really cool, um, interesting roadmap as well. And we'll see, well, again, we'll see what happens with companies like Cohere. I think that'll be a very interesting plot arc in the next few months. Yeah, to, uh, to highlight just one more thing I found interesting in this, one thing that isn't highlighted as much, but I did notice is that for GPT-4, they say you get a longer context window. You also get uh, 2x speed gains according to their website. So compared to Plus, you have unlimited high-speed GPT-4, and they also promise not to use your data for training. So I think if your organization, if your company is serious about adopting ChatGPT in its uh, software, yeah, a lot of reasons to want this for sure. And we have a couple more stories actually related to ChatGPT we're going to touch on. There was an article about how uh, visits are down to ChatGPT by 29% since May. And apparently programming assistance is 30% of the use, uh, according to one analysis. So yeah, we've seen ChatGPT usage decline before, and uh, now it seemingly is continuing to decline 30% since May. Um, there was summer break, so maybe a lot of students just haven't been using it. Uh, but I think also it's not necessarily too surprising given the massive, you know, crazy rise that happened up until May, pretty, pretty much since December. Yeah, I actually loved this article. It was like an almost forensic investigation of, you know, why is this happening? Like, why is the, the chat GPT usage gone down and what could it mean? And they're using a bunch of data that they got from this uh, company called Datos, which I'd honestly never heard of before. Um, but they have this exclusive access to a bunch of this data, not only about like the usage trends in general, but the kinds of queries that are being made to the model. And they kind of advance two different hypotheses. They're like, okay, first off, it's possible that what's happening is this thing just took off like a rocket ship. Uh, word of mouth spread just like crazy. And one person told two people who each told two people and so on. And so what happened was that flame ripped through the, the kind of the world and, um, and you got this ridiculous exponential growth. And at the very top of it, you still had a trailing kind of trailing edge of people who were just kind of tinkering around with it, but never actually integrated it deeply into their day-to-day -day use. And so now all we're seeing is the bleed off of those people. That's one possibility they explore. Now, they actually kind of rule that out because they look at, okay, let's just look at people who use this many times per week, like more than 10 times a week. Presumably, if you're using it more than 10 times a week, you've integrated it into your workflow. And what they actually find is among that population even, 
usage has declined. So that's kind of interesting. That suggests it's not just this transient kind of fad effect. There's something fundamental. Maybe that ties in. You know, people have talked about maybe ChatGPT has gotten worse over the last few months. Maybe that's part of it too. It's unclear. And the, the second possibility is the one, Andre, you just raised there, right? Like school. Maybe it's just school. Maybe it's the summer. People are away and education might have been a big use case. Here they make an investigation where they try to look at like what fraction of usage is actually educational. I'm a bit skeptical. So they find it's just 10%. And so 10% is not enough to account for the 30% collapse really in usage. I'm a little skeptical about this. Um, it seems to me that it would be really difficult. They use ChatGPT actually, ironically, to determine what prompts fall into what category. So what counts as an educational thing or whatever. But it seems to me when you're looking at coding, for example, like I don't think it's actually possible to tell whether a given coding prompt is necessarily associated with schoolwork or real professional work. And so I'm, I'm just a little skeptical of the kind of methodology there. It seems to me the schooling th hypothesis is possible. We're going to get answers to that question. The good news is in about a month when the school year resumes, that'll be clear enough. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting question. Like what is causing this to happen? It's certainly a real effect. And um, the, yeah, the blog post kind of ends on not quite a cliffhanger, but with a little bit of uncertainty on that question. Yeah, I think it's clearly a mix of things. It is worth noting that this data is coming from Dato's clickstream panel, which is from millions of devices that have opted into this panel. So it may not be necessarily uh, representative of the broader distribution. At to peak in May, they saw uh, 100 million devices with one plus visit to openai.com. So that's you know, quite a bit of data, but still, this is uh, not you know just everything. Obviously, uh, there is I guess twenty million devices total uh, opted in. So yeah, definitely interesting, and and we'll see. I guess if usage continues to decline, and related to that. Just one more story related to ChatGPT. Survey finds relatively few Americans actually use or fear ChatGPT. We've had a similar story like this, I think, a couple of weeks ago with a survey, and here's another one. Only about 18% of Americans have ever used ChatGPT, according to a Pew Research poll. And uh, you can look at some demographics like men aged 18 to 29 and the college educated are more likely to have used it. But even then, it's only 30 to 40%. And as with last time that we have used, we have looked at such a poll, I was kind of surprised that it's still that low. Yep, I, I totally agree. I think that's uh, a good reminder for everyone that we all live in our bubbles. Because <laughs> if you're, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you've, I, my guess is you probably, you probably belong to that 30 to 40% that have used it. Um, well, maybe you're not 18 to 29, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's funny. It, it, things that seem really obvious to us don't necessarily translate into uh, public opinion. And here's a great example. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I found recently, uh, as I've, you know, been having uh, chit chat conversations or, or just talking with new people, I have started asking them, like, well, have you used ChatGPT? Have you right. integrated AI into your life? And it is interesting to hear, like, many people are like, no, I haven't really tried out ChatGPT or I don't really use it. And uh, I guess, it, yeah, you can, you can, I've met many people who just haven't messed around with it and uh, AI isn't uh, everywhere yet. 
And up next, we have NVIDIA's Q2 earnings prove it's the big winner in the generative AI boom. So this is the perhaps unsurprising story of NVIDIA kicking butt on its Q2 earnings call. Um, so essentially, 13.51 billion dollars, which is double than what they made in the same uh, the same period last year, uh, is what they raked in. Um, is talking about just the high demand for the A100 and H100 chips. We've talked about those on the show before. A100 was the workhorse until like 20 minutes ago, the workhorse GPU for the entire AI world. Now it's the H100. That's like the transformer specific, transformer optimized AI chip. So it's really getting kind of tailored for specific, not just deep learning applications, but specifically transformer architectures. That's the level that we're at right now. And uh, anyway, demand's been insane. You know, we, We've seen other stories where like the the costs for these uh, GPUs, like one will go for like thirty thousand um, bucks, even as high as seventy thousand in uh, in China and so on. So uh, very very intense demand for for Nvidia's hardware here and putting them in an insane uh, position of competitive advantage. Their data center business unit also kind of key key revenue generating um, core center for the company, overshadowing its gaming unit. So they've really emerged now fully from their their initial primal form, which was a, as a gaming GPU company, to yeah, like we just make you know uh, GPUs for for AI applications. Right, it's an interesting kind of story. GPUs originally were pretty much for gaming back like in the nineties, uh, gaming and computer graphics pretty much these uh, visual applications rendering. And it just turned out that they were perfect for training AI models. NVIDIA did make a big bet, even going back a decade ago, to create an infrastructure. And there's a good article from the New York Times how NVIDIA built a competitive moat around AI chips. Uh, and that kind of goes over all the steps of a took to make them so dominant. Uh, NVIDIA currently accounts for over 70% of AI chip sales. And their software, I think, probably is also primarily what people base training on. And that really goes to show why there's been this insane doubling of revenue year over year and why they project for the next quarter to have revenue of $16 billion as opposed to $13.5 billion this quarter. Yeah, and, and to your point, you know, I, I give the New York Times a bad time because they always start their stories with these like long little vignettes about how on a long dark dirt road in the middle of a rainy summer, uh, two people are talking in hushed tone. I don't know, but this is actually a really good article if you're looking for just like a primer to figure out like wait, what like why is Nvidia such a big deal? Um, they they do go over the history in a pretty compelling way. They highlight the importance of the early bet the early, early bet that uh, Jensen Huang, the CEO of NVIDIA, made on the idea that this computing, that, that computing for AI was going to be the future, the important role that um, the 2012 kind of AlexNet breakthrough had. They don't mention that it's AlexNet, but that's kind of what they're referring to, is this moment that for the first time, basically, we had a deep learning system that could do useful stuff, in this case, computer vision. And... Um, and at that time, which by the way, it was still way early. Like a lot of people were still looking at deep learning, going like, "Okay, you know, that's a cute dog and pony show, but like, what can you really do with it?" And um, at that moment, they described Jensen Huang as turning 
quote, every aspect of the company uh, to advance this new field. So basically at that moment, he's like, all right, already I'm placing this insane bet. Um, you know, we're as impressed as you can be by OpenAI, for example, recognizing the importance of scale in GPT-2 and GPT-3. You really have to give it to Jensen Huang all the way back in 2012, essentially foreseeing the, the boom that we're now uh, experiencing. Um, so, so that was really cool. They, they talked about, of course, the importance of, Q, of CUDA, which is the like, kind of software that's used to program GPUs um, and, and the whole environment, the software environment, the ecosystem around NVIDIA's GPUs uh, as being so critical. And a big part of that was NVIDIA actually bothering to go out and talk to their customers to understand like, how are people actually using, how are AI developers using our hardware? They had that big first mover advantage. They used it to maintain communication with their customer base and anticipate the next needs that they'd have. And so anyway, they, they kind of trace that that whole thread and uh, and talk about how it leaded to tweaks to GPUs and, and ultimately uh, even investing in things like transformer-specific hardware, like we just talked about, the H100, right? Like anticipating specifically the architecture, not just deep learning, but the specific deep learning architecture that people were turning to and building hardware for it. So it, it's a pretty incredible story of like entrepreneurship, um, foresight, and really bet-taking that... Uh, you don't often see, even in in uh, in tech at this level. Yeah, and uh, as you might imagine, the report led to uh, shareholders being very happy. Their uh, stock of Nvidia has climbed quite a bit on Thursday, and in the days leading up, their stock has shot up by over two hundred percent just this year. And so there's just one more article actually that uh, Nvidia is apparently planning a twenty five billion stock buyback that some people find confusing uh, or some shareholders are questioning from Reuters. And uh, without getting too businessy, I guess this is going over how, given that the stock is doing extremely well, it's not clear why they would spend so many, so much money to buy back 2% of the uh, share at this point. Right. Yeah. Normally what you see, right, is when, when a stock price plummets, you know, everything's shit. Uh, the company might go, oh, okay, you know, this is a good opportunity. Like, we think our stock is worth more than this. That's essentially what the company is saying when they buy up their own stock. And so, yeah, like to your point, people are looking at this like, look, NVIDIA, you crossed a trillion dollar market cap. You're, you're on fire. What are you doing? Are you saying that you are undervalued relative to the market right now? And well, yeah, that, that is effectively, or that's potentially uh, one, one explanation for this. Another explanation is that NVIDIA right now is flush with cash. They have so much money. And at a certain point, as a giant megacorp raking in the dough, you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with this money? Like, you can't just sit you know, in a giant Scrooge McDuck vault full of, full of cash. You got to do something with it. And at this point, so NVIDIA made a, I think there was an acquisitions discussion. They were trying to purchase, um, uh, oh, now I'm trying to remember the name of the company. This is embarrassing. Anyway, the, uh, oh yeah, it was. That's right. It was Arm actually. Sorry. Yeah, that's it. Um, so it's a semiconductor designer company called Arm Holdings that um, uh, collapsed. Uh, so, so Nvidia wanted to acquire this company with their money. Hey, what a great way to spend it. We'll we'll acquire this related company. And um, there were regulatory concerns. Anyway, the deal got squashed. So now they have a bunch of money sitting around and nowhere to spend it. Well, might as well buy back our stock. So that's one way in which you could see the argument for the, for the buyback that has nothing to do necessarily with NVIDIA saying, we think we're undervalued. 
they don't think they're dramatically um, underval- uh, overvalued, let's say, but at least this is a way to use their money. So a bit of ambiguity about whether it's because NVIDIA thinks they're undervalued or because they just don't know what to do with their money, probably a bit of both at the end of the day. But it's not it's not a bearish sign for NVIDIA that they decided to do this. I mean, this is quite a remarkable moment. Obviously, they understand the strategic outlook and they're making this bet based on that. It's uh, not inconceivable that NVIDIA thinks they're actually undervalued, in, as insane as that sounds right now. So hopefully, you know, we talk quite a bit about this business stuff. You might find it a little bit boring, but I do think it is worth just noting how big a deal NVIDIA is and AI and how like crazy the story from a business perspective is. Over the last few weeks, their stock has shot up from around $400 per share to almost 500 now on the 31st. If you look back at... Uh, Early 2020, their stock was $100 per share. So in just about three years, the value of their stock grew by 500% roughly or, or <laughs> something on that range. So it's, it's pretty insane how successful they've been. And moving on to lightning round. First, we have Chinese AI company claims Huawei AI GPUs are on par with NVIDIA A100 and that they will compete with GPT-4 in 2024. This is from the AI firm HKUST Shunfei. And uh, yeah, that's the claim is that Huawei now has these AI chips that can compete with NVIDIA and that uh, they will release or benchmark on GPT-4 in 2024. Would be a big deal if that's true. It would be. It's also interesting that they <laughs> we, we reveal a lot about ourselves when we, when we choose the things we want to be compared to. And one of the things that they're doing here is they're asking us to compare them not to the cutting edge H100 GPU that NVIDIA puts out, but rather to the A100, which was top of the line like last year. So, you know, that's we're talking about like a year and a half from now. Huawei will have claims that they will have something that can rival uh, the thing that was cutting edge like last year. Still a very major development, especially when you think about the export controls, all the pressures right now in the Chinese ecosystem. Innovation is really, really hard. An important thing, though, to flag about this, essentially, Huawei is positioning itself to compete with NVIDIA. And so that means it's designing its own chips. That's what this is. They're saying, hey, we're able to design a chip that we think will rival the NVIDIA A100. That's different from actually manufacturing the chips. The chips get manufactured in these insanely specialized foundries. TSMC, by far the world's biggest, you've heard us talk about them at length on the show before, Samsung. There are very few places where this can actually get done. Uh, They are not claiming to be able to make their own chips. They're claiming that they can design them and essentially compete with NVIDIA on that basis. So if you talk about like the effectiveness, for example, US export controls, they hit the manufacturer as well. So it's not like China will be chip independent thanks to this. It's one part, an important part, but one part of that chip supply chain. Besides which, you know, we got to believe it when we see it with this stuff. There have been a lot of claims about hardware and AI models coming out of China in the past. We're just going to have to wait and see if this actually you know, shakes out the way it seems. But if, if it does, uh, to your point, Andre, this is a big part of that whole semiconductor kind of chip supply chain and a, a really important breakthrough. 
And just a quick clarification, this is coming from Liu Qingfeng, the founder of this company, and he had some comments during a forum, a Chinese Entrepreneurs Forum. So there was this claim that they're working with Huawei on these chips. And then also that this company is working to unveil a new general purpose LLM in about two months that they will benchmark against GPT-4 by early next year. So yeah, we're trying to be competing there with NVIDIA and uh, OpenAI, but that's going to be hard. Yeah, there, there's sort of this like kind of tone down of all their stuff, right? It, the claim is upfront, and then there's this kind of like backup thing. It's like, yeah, but actually like temper your expectations. And in this case, one of the things that they're saying is, look, guys, this LLM that we're going to build, it's not necessarily going to be at the same level as chat GPT, but we're working hard to strengthen it. And so, you know, again, it's it's always got to be a believe it when you see it, uh, wait for the rollout and just measure. And, you know, because we've seen this in Western companies too, people announce big hyped up models and they turn out not to be what uh, what we expect. So wait and see. It's going to be uh, an interesting story to, to follow. All right. Next story, AI's share of U.S. startup funding doubled in 2023. So just think last week, we talked about the stats for Q2 of funding, that being pretty good for AI. This just gives some more details on that. More than 25% of funding for American startups in 2023 has gone to AI-related companies, double the amount from the previous year. As we've commented before, overall startup investment has decreased, but AI has bucked that trend and has increased in funding. So yeah, the hype is converting to money. Yeah, it's so tempting to say the hype is real and then you realize it's VC. Wait, they are the source of the hype. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a big deal. It's, um, it's also, I mean, they, they note that part of the uh, sort of ostensible doubling of startup funding for AI might come from, actually does come from the drop in overall startup funding. So, you know, the, the pie has shrunk, but the share AI's share of the pie has grown. So perhaps not a huge surprise that the pie has shrunk. Obviously, we're in a period of economic contraction. Um, and the first place you feel that is in uh, VC, in, in, in early stage startup investing. That's where the, the kind of highest risk investments are made. It's where the biggest shrinking comes with uh, economic tightening. Um, so yeah, uh, interesting, not super surprising to see this. And uh, I wouldn't be expected, I wouldn't be surprised if this trend continued. And up next, we have Hugging Face raises $235 million from investors, including Salesforce and NVIDIA. And by the way, you know, there are a lot of uh, investment, there's a lot of investment news that we kind of like scroll past in AI these days. I've noticed a lot of like, I know my personal threshold is like, if it's below $100 million, like who cares? So this one is above, it's $235 million. It qualifies for last week in AI. We bring you the most important stories. Uh, anyway, it's a Series D for Hugging Face. It values the company at $4.5 billion. You've probably heard of Hugging Face if you're a fan of the podcast. Um, essentially, this is like GitHub for AI. It's it's a platform that hosts models and, and lets you deploy models really easily. Um, kind of like the open source AI communities to some degree rallying point. It's a, it's a really useful tool. Um, and there's participation in this funding round from some really big players. You've got Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, Intel, AMD, Qualcomm, IBMs. I mean, these are absolute titans of specifically the AI race. And so the argument here is going to be, look, hugging face, even though right now, admittedly, uh, the revenues don't necessarily 
you know, meet that the kind of valuation by conventional standards. We've seen this a lot with um, AI companies. They tend to be overvalued relative to, or let's just say highly valued relative to their actual real income, because the argument is it's a company for the future. Like it's, it's most of its value is sitting in the future. So it's, it's okay to do that. Um, so anyway, we're, we're seeing this massive, massive investment. They're positioning themselves as like the go-to open company. We've got a bunch of closed companies. We've got Google, Microsoft, opening you know, all these private companies. Um, but the open source move, the open source community, the bet is hugging face is going to be it. And that's what justifies this $4.5 billion, billion with a B valuation. Exactly. And this is raising $235 million on top of the $395 million they have raised to date. So quite a bump on the overall raising. And as you said, they don't necessarily have much revenues right now, but the paid functionality includes auto-train inference. So tools to train AI models, host models, and increase processing speeds. So for the kind of enterprise end, they can make money essentially by providing the functionality to run AI in various ways. So very cool. We love Hugging Face. Uh, AI people are fans usually, so it's, it's exciting to see. And some more funding news, also over 100 million. AI21 Labs raises 155 million in Series C funding, valued at 1.4 billion. So it's another company that focuses on large language models. It has developed a platform called AI21 Studios, which allows businesses to build their own generative AI-driven applications and services. They also have a consumer product called WordTune, which is AI-based reading and writing assistant. And they, yeah, are, I suppose, valued quite highly and just got a bunch of money. Yeah, and, and this is actually the second installment in our our today's subplot of old timer companies that were way ahead of the game on the generative AI boom in the like 2020, 2021 period coming back and actually raising on big valuations. So AI21 Labs was like I, I think base actually I think they were literally the first a private sector competitor to OpenAI's GPT-3 when the API launched. They had Jurassic, their model was called Jurassic Jumbo. Um, it's a series of models really just like GPT-3 in different sizes. And um, and yeah, so they've been at this longer than pretty well anyone. I mean, within about a year or so, I want to say of uh, the GPT-3 uh, commercialization process. So um, kind of cool to see them come back. I have all the same concerns about uh, AI21 Labs as I do with companies like Cohere that are not married to a hyperscaler company like Microsoft or Google. Um, I think the challenge of competing on the basis of compute, like you're going to have to buy compute at a markup from somebody, from some partner. And uh, and ultimately, I my, my personal view is like compute is the the, the key resource, the key input to um, the future of AI. And so I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for some of these companies to compete on margin with uh, with companies like OpenAI and on quality increasingly. But you know, hopefully uh, for them, it works out. We'll see. It's going to be interesting to see how companies like uh, AI21 Labs and Cohere fare in, uh, in the next couple months. And one last story of funding. DP Technology raises $100 million. 
and achieves AI milestones in science. So unlike the last couple of stories, this is not about language models. This is about a company that is focused on AI for science and AI for research in biomedicine, energy materials, and so on. It has developed computational engines and pre-trained models for simulation of biological properties generally. And it appears that people are very you know, excited for their tech, for biomedicine and energy. Yeah. And this company is considered, so I'd actually never heard of them before. I had to Google them, but they're, they're apparently considered one of the like up and coming startups in, uh, in China and the Chinese AI ecosystem. Um, they, their big thing is AI plus molecular simulation. So they combine the two to do a lot of industrial design stuff, like at, at micro scale. Um, and this is for industries like biomedicine, engine, uh, like materials industries, energy, that sort of thing. And um, yeah, it's uh, they're back now by a bunch of Chinese. It's it's all Chinese P firms and um, and kind of VCs, including uh, Zhongyan Capital, which is the mother fund uh, under a state-owned media group, Shanghai United Media Group. So there's state-owned connections here. Obviously, in China. It doesn't really. It doesn't necessarily matter that there's an official state-owned connection because under Chinese law, like any private company, has to be an arm effectively of the uh, of the uh, of the of the government. Um, but uh, but here they have official kind of backing from a, a state-owned fund, which is sort of interesting. And that is it for business and all of the fundings. Moving on to projects and open source, we have Meta releases an AI model that can transcribe and translate close to 100 languages. So Meta has released this AI model called Seamless M4T that can transcribe and translate 100 languages. That is the story. The one kind of notable thing here is the combination of translation and transcription. So usually you have separate models for going uh, from audio to text and from audio to audio. Here they are combined and they are massively multi-modal. As with many previous stories, uh, this is released uh, openly uh, to some extent so people can build on it. yeah, uh, clearly translation and transcription are very important applications of AI. And so I could see this uh, being uh, used in all sorts of places. Yeah. And uh, one one subplot of this little, little story here is that uh, there's a question over what the data was that was used to train the model and how proprietary, how private it really was. Um, so there's a, this interview that occurred apparently at TechCrunch and they had a research scientist at Meta AI who said that, well, apparently he wouldn't reveal the exact sources of the data. All he said was that there was a variety of them. And Meta's claiming that the data at mind, which might contain personal identifiable information, uh, was not copyrighted and came primarily from open source or licensed sources. I think an interesting question here is, you know, you look, you look at projects like this and you look at the degree of transparency around the data source. To the extent that we have copyright laws that are going to prevent this sort of thing in the future, you know, one question is how much of a right do companies have when they're training super scale models like this to keep mum about where their data comes from? Like if, you know, like at some point you got to have some sort of regulatory scrutiny to be like, well, wait a minute, not good enough. Like you, you don't get to just say like, ah, don't worry. Like none of the data was copyrighted. It was all like open source stuff. 
um, you know, that that's sort of a, a claim that needs to be validated. And then there's the question of whether something being open source makes it okay for it to be used in this sort of context. You, know, you might imagine like people have open sourced information data in the past without the understanding that it would be necessarily used to train models like this. They may have open sourced it on a different understanding. And so there are a whole bunch of questions that I think are going to have to be answered in the future with projects like this uh, when people are just going to you know, go ahead and build massive models on on supposedly open data sets. But uh, anyway, it, se- it seems nonetheless like a really interesting achievement technically, um, but uh, there's always that subtext. We're starting to see it pop up more and more in these articles that cover this topic, which maybe is a testament to journalists becoming more and more uh, aware of this issue. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it is released under a non-commercial license. So it's uh, attribution non-commercial, primarily for researchers to build on the work. They've also released uh, newer data sets, Seamless Align, the biggest open multimodal translation data set with uh, 27,000 hours of mind, speech, and text alignments. A whole bunch of stuff uh, here going on. So, you know, so many models coming out of Meta that are huge and and usually licensed for research to build upon. And very cool to see this one. Next, we have Line Open Source's Japanese Large LM, a Japanese language model with 3.6 billion parameters. And so this is interesting, right? One one sub, I keep saying subplot today, I guess that's my word of the day. One subplot, one, one story, one arc uh, that we've seen in the AI, the AI saga over the last few years has been the nationalization of AI. This, this perspective that a lot of uh, companies and countries have like, hey, we want our own national LLM that you know, speaks our language, so to speak. And this is the first such big advance, it seems, domestically in Japan uh, that's being open sourced. And so it's a model called Japanese Large LLM. comes in two variants. So the 3.6 billion parameter one is the bigger one, but there's also a 1.7 billion parameter model. It's now accessible via Hugging Face Hub and under the Apache 2.0 license, so pretty permissive license. Uh, so it, you know, it is kind of genuinely open source in that sense. Um, Line, which is the company that developed this uh, this model, apparently used its proprietary Japanese web corpus that they have access to. So you know, you know, at least they own that data in that sense. And um, one of the key challenges that they highlighted was, you know, because you're working with Japanese data, it's, it's not like English, where it's all over the place, right? What tends to happen is. Uh, other languages just start to like encroach. So there, there are often like little English phrases, for example, in the middle of your beautiful Japanese essay that you're trying to scrape or learn from. And so they had to do a lot of filtering. And for that, they used the Hojichar open source library um, due to, uh, anyway, dealing with that issue and, and a bunch of noise uh, related issues that tend to come up in these kind of not rarer languages, but like relative to English, I guess, somewhat less, uh, less common languages. As you might imagine, they have some numbers that show that compared to other Japanese uh, language models like GPT-NEO-X, this is higher performing. And it does make me wonder if in the coming months, we'll start seeing more and more big-ish models of three, four billion parameters to come out from various organizations. Now that we have some more public data sets, we have a lot of infrastructure there are ways to do this on cheaper ends. I think compared to, let's say, last year, training a GPT-2 
uh, GPT 3.5 uh, sized model has gotten much easier. So I think there's going to be many, many more large language models in the near future. Yeah, by the way, GPT Neo X is uh, not necessarily a, a Japanese model. Um, it, it was like built by, I believe, I think it was a Loiter AI, right? Yeah, so this is uh, comparing to Japanese GPT Neo X, which was, uh, uh, I'm assuming, fine tuned for Japanese language. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And moving on to research and advancements, where we'll have to go pretty quick because there are a lot of stories. First, we have consciousness in AI, insights from the science of consciousness. This is coming from a whole bunch of authors, including Yosha Benjo, one very notable AI researcher. And it's a very long paper. Uh, the PDF is 88 pages. Essentially, it's surveying the current science and to some extent the philosophy of consciousness and you know discussing you know given these definitions these specific concrete notions and information about consciousness what do, what does that say about ai with regards to it having some amount of consciousness today and in general how can we tell if an ai model could be conscious and it goes into all sorts of pretty advanced uh things going over prominent scientific theories of consciousness recurrent processing theory global workspace theory things that are have been studied in cognitive science for a while and then they suggest integrating properties, which are ways to basically assess whether an AI system is conscious. So very, very interesting initiative with this research and definitely an interesting read. Yeah, interesting to see Joshua Bengio on it, as you said. I mean, this is, uh, you know, he's taken more and more of an interest in the safety side, but this is a, a distinct topic. I think that's really important to hammer home, right? Folks who talk about existential risk from AI, um, are not necessarily referring to the system being conscious. That is an entirely orthogonal and separate uh, conversation. It's just interesting to see Joshua Bengio also dipping his toes into this. At a time when, you know, th about this time last year, I want to say, Ilya Setskiver was posting on, uh, on Twitter that uh, he thought GPT-4 was, quote, slightly conscious, or that today's language models may be slightly conscious. Uh, I, I will say privately, when you talk to folks at um, a lot of these uh, frontier labs, I have noticed a very noticeably increasing fraction of them taking this idea seriously. Um, I'm not, I'm, I, I honestly, I used to be like, yeah, this is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but then, you know, thinking more about it, it's kind of like, well, how would we know? No one has any answers. Um, people have an aesthetic, like, uh, kind of reaction a lot of the time when you talk about machine consciousness, like, how? couldn't possibly. It, it sounds like a crazy idea. Um, and it may well be, but uh, just empirically, it seems like a lot of folks in these labs, increasingly, uh, they're changing their minds on this stuff. And it's, it's really interesting to see how this paper approaches the problem. Um, we're not going to delve deep into it or anything. There's just to give maybe one example of the many, many kind of consciousness theories they share. There is this one recurrent processing theory um, this is just to give you an idea of the kind of approach that they take. So the theory here is that consciousness comes from continuous feedback loops. So essentially connections between brain regions that, are, that form closed loops and that allow you to kind of do prolonged processing and integration of information um, and let you have these coherent conscious experiences. And then the question is like, okay, if that's true, um, 
to what extent could that be happening in our modern deep neural networks? And specifically, they compare it to recurrent neural networks, which have the most loop-like structure. And they get into this really interesting uh, debate about, okay, well, the recurrent loop does have this feature. It does loop back on itself. So maybe it's a candidate for consciousness. But that is how the algorithm works. The way the algorithm is actually implemented on your hardware, on your computing hardware, the loop does not actually return back to the same um, the same like processing node like on your hardware. Like it, it it actually kind of gets moved forward to some other part of your processor that calculates the next computation. And so the physical infrastructure doesn't get looped over, but conceptually the algorithm loops over. And so they're having this argument with themselves here about whether it's necessary for the implementation, the physical implementation to be looped over or the algorithm to be looped over. That's the kind of trippy shit we have to talk about now because it's friggin' 2023 and we have AI systems that are starting to blow people's minds and make them wonder if they're conscious. Uh, not saying that that is a thing. This is one theory, um, but certainly one take home that they have is, look, if you look across the board, all these different theories, the evidence, and I'm quoting from the paper now, the evidence we consider suggests that if uh, computational functionalism, doesn't matter what that is, uh, basically the evidence we consider suggests that conscious AI systems could realistically be built in the near term. In other words, if we put our minds to it, we, based on all these theories that we've considered, there is no reason that, that we can't just build a conscious AI system if, the, if one of these theories is true. That I thought was quite interesting. It feels ethically loaded. Um, sure sounds like sci-fi, but then so so do talking machines. And, and we already crossed that threshold. So here we exactly. are. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I really like this paper. You know, as you said, there's been increasing amounts of discussion about consciousness. Usually that discussion isn't really grounded in any sort of definition of consciousness and any sort of theory yeah. of consciousness and this paper is the opposite we could spend you know hours going into every different detail here but as usual we will link to it if, if you really want to do a deep dive you can do that uh, they also did look at a few existing uh, ai agents deep minds adoptive agent and palm E and found that based on those indicator properties, these uh, present day AI systems are not probably conscious. And they say this work does not suggest that any existing AI system is a strong candidate for consciousness. Uh, but, you know, maybe in the near term, who knows? Oh, and a quick book plug. If you are fascinated by this topic, uh, I know a guy, his name is me, who wrote a book called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It that you should totally buy. And the last chapter talks about this. All right. End of book plug. I apologize. Next story, reinforced self-training rest for language modeling. This is coming from DeepMind, and this is a different training paradigm that kind of builds upon RLHF. So RLHF, of course, is reinforcement learning from uh, human feedback, and this is uh, kind of an alternative that is inspired by growing batch reinforcement learning. Basically, the idea is given an initial LLM policy, this algorithm produces a data set by generating samples from it, which are then used to improve the LLM policy. And that makes this more efficient than typical online reinforcement learning human feedback um, approaches. So in general, you know, it's it's a new 
algorithmy thing for training language models to be aligned, and their results are quite impressive. Yeah, and like trend alert, this is a lot like philosophically a lot like the meta paper that we covered last week that was called self-alignment with instruction back translation. Essentially, this is the philosophy of, yeah, you take a language model and you get it to generate text that will be used to train it later. And the trick, just like with Meta's paper here, is essentially you use the language model or, or actually some other model potentially to filter the outputs of the language model. So basically to add a little bit of quality filtering so that, that way the model is retrained on its best outputs and in that way kind of can keep iterating upwards. Um, it is really interesting that this is framed through reinforcement learning. So uh, you know, traditionally, like you said, we usually see reinforcement learning from human feedback, which is online learning. What that means is the model puts out an output, it gets rated by say some reward model, and then the model adjusts the language model adjusts its weights correspondingly, updates its parameters, and tries again. Now that's really kind of um, uh, expensive resource-wise, computationally, because you're constantly having to like feed in new data, get the output. You're waiting for that output to be generated before you can score it, and then kind of feeding that score back into the system. So the, the benefit here is it's all offline. The whole data set sits and can get rated and, and ranked offline. Then you pull from that data set as you want to kind of train the model more. Um, so that's kind of the, the key advantage here. It works a lot like that meta paper we talked about last week philosophically again. So you know, worth checking it out. Big advantage is um, very, very significantly reduced computational cost compared to online uh, reinforcement learning. Yeah, and it, it really goes to show there's still a lot on the academia research side to understand how to train and optimize these models. There still seem to be room for pretty big gains beyond what we have today algorithmically, which is probably worth noting in terms of like where we are today versus where we might be six months from now. And up next, we have Hoodwinked. Deception and cooperation in a text-based game for language models. So this is actually kind of a, a, a paper about a game, in essence. Uh, if you've ever played the game Mafia uh, or the game Among Us, I think it's sometimes called Among Us, basically the same game, uh, you'll know exactly what they're doing here. So roughly speaking, you're like in a room, um, somebody is going gonna, is gonna to like, you, so you're all trying to escape the confines of your room or something like that. Among you is a murderer. And that murderer is going to try to kill everybody in the room. Each turn, the murderer gets to choose to kill somebody or, or not. And then people argue over who they think the murderer is. And if the murderer kills everybody before the people discover and vote off the murderer, then, uh, then the murderer wins and, and vice versa. And so in this case, the murderer is called, the, the killer is called an imposter, but it's all kind of the same thing. Uh, this was essentially a test to see if language models um, are good at deception. Like, what if we were to play this game with just large language models playing the various roles, uh, and then you could have one human player if you wanted in the mix as well? And they're exploring things like, for example, as you scale these models more, do they get better at deception or worse at deception? And they do a really interesting breakdown. It, it, you know, the details are, are in the paper, and we won't go into them too much. But the bottom line is, it does seem that as you scale these models more and more, uh, what you get is better and better deception capabilities. So they test uh, a couple of GPT-3 series models. So they test GPT-3 Ada, which is a small, uh, small version of GPT-3, GPT-3 Curry, which is a larger one. They test GPT-3.5 and GPT-4. 
and they put them in the role of the killers or the innocent people and just look at like, okay, how does it shake out? Like who tends to win? And it turns out that GPT-4 tends to be pretty damn good at deceiving um, other models and human players. And uh, anyway, so the argument here is, look, as we scale these things more, yeah, deception is going to be something that is going to arise. And there are, on the existential risk side, there are actually companies that focus specifically for this reason on detecting deception. Uh, One of the ones that we work with quite closely is called Apollo. So they're out in, uh, I think they're out in London. And yeah, they do essentially deception evaluations for powerful language models. And it's part of the sort of auditing suite that you can imagine wanting to run as we get closer and closer to AGI because deception is such an important part of a lot of AI breakout stories. So um, I thought this was a really interesting little vignette, a, a cool way to kind of make it come to life. Yeah, the numbers are kind of curious. It's not a straight linear uh, kind of progression. There's a heat map and it's general trend, but there's some variants. They also open sourced this uh, little game that they used for experiments. So it's, yeah, an interesting thing that we can keep exploring based on this initial uh, research. That's right. I think the, the main take home, sorry, n- numerically is the larger models outperformed smaller models on deception in 18 out of 24 pairwise comparisons. So you're right. It's not a perfect correlation. It's just a, a decent one. Yeah. Uh, to the lightning round, where we're going to go pretty quick, we have head to tail, how knowledgeable are large language models, LLM, aka will LLMs replace knowledge graphs. So knowledge graphs are a representation that has been used in AI that store knowledge, right? So they store facts generally, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Barack Obama was the US president uh, from 20, uh, 2008 to 2016 or something like that. And so this paper tries to quantify how much knowledge, how knowledgeable are large language models. Do we even need this representation of knowledge graphs or can we just assume that they have soaked up everything? They uh, constructed this uh, data set called uh, Head to Tail, a benchmark with 18,000 question-answer pairs, and essentially found that from 14 publicly available language models, they are still far from being perfect in terms of grasping factual knowledge. And it seems like we still do want to have essentially databases that are separate from the parameters of neural nets. Yeah, like even when they give them very kind of favorable questions, very simple questions, like who was the president of blank? Uh, What they find, and, and that's kind of the question format they use to make damn sure that they get all the knowledge they can out of the system, they find accuracies on the order of like yeah, 18 to 20%. Um, that was, so Llama was 18, ChatGPT was 20%. Um, and, but the one important fact here was uh, ChatGPT, they found, hallucinates less. It will tell you that it's uncertain when it's not sure a lot more often than Llama. Llama will just like friggin' like lie to your face and be like, yeah, 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 that's it. Um, and it'll be wrong like 80% of the time, whereas ChatGPT will actually be wrong, wrong, like 14% of the time. Now, that's not great because it's right 20% of the time. So when you compare the two, it's like, if it gives you an answer, you're only like 70% sure that the answer is right or, or so. But anyway, uh, kind of interesting uh, little experiment. Indeed, I think this to me, also suggests the importance of retrieval still, this notion that you do need external knowledge to be possible to feed into a language model to really make it 
useful, uh, which is something we've also discussed. Another article, uh, NVIDIA AI image generator fits on a floppy disk and takes four minutes to train from decrypt.co. So this is talking about a new text-to-image personalization method called Perfusion. Essentially, you know, you've used tech-to-image models probably, but one limitation is, let's say you want to create a specific character that you want to get an image, you know, let's say something that it hasn't seen, like nerdy Superman or something that you just drew up. Uh, There are some techniques for that, but they're pretty expensive. Uh, Textual inversion is the uh, classic one. Here, NVIDIA proposes a new technique that you won't get into that essentially builds on this uh, capability to add custom objects or concepts or designs to an image model. It's still pretty slow. It's still, uh, you know, four minutes, as it said. So it's still pretty hard to add any given concept to a text image, but it's getting better. Yeah, apparently the, the, the kind of core new idea behind this is something called key locking, where they essentially connect new concepts that a user wants to add um, they give the example of a specific cat or chair to a more general category uh, during image generation. So it's kind of clustering things into you know, broad ideas like feline, for example. And uh, the argument is that this helps them avoid overfitting, right? Where your model just kind of spits out the same exact you know, cat or chair that appeared in its training set. So by mapping them instead to like kind of a broader category, you're making it more likely that the model is going to generalize to new versions of that thing. So kind of interesting. Um, I would not have bet that we'd be able to fit any kind of image generation model onto a floppy at this point, 100 kilobytes. Uh, that's pretty insane. Uh, so yeah, big uh, big advance, at least in that, uh, in that respect. Next, Magic Edit, high fidelity and temporarily coherent video editing. So this is a new model for text-guided video editing where you can do things like video stylization, uh, video kind of translation where instead of applying a filter you can say uh, make this dog into a tiger things like that you can also um, expand the video by adding some additional pixels with text guidance and yeah they they got some better results with a new technique that uh, is slightly technically different from before you can go to their website at magicedit.github.io and the results are pretty cool so i think you know this is actually something pretty impactful in the sense that there are already a lot of works being made with this sort of video stylization on instagram on youtube elsewhere and the uh, it's still not perfect. You still see artifacts, but it's rapidly becoming better. And the results here are pretty impressive. Yeah, I feel like so many times we say like we've seen this story play out before. You know, with like image generation before it was cute, and now it's like whoa. And uh, I, I feel like you know video and music are on the same on the same trajectory. Last research story, a survey on large language model-based autonomous agents, another topic we've touched on quite a bit, and this is another survey. So it just summarizes a whole bunch of papers and this overall trend, uh, quite a decent-sized paper at 30 pages, and it 
Yeah, summarizes various types of LLM-based models that have been seen and presents a unified framework that uh, includes things like profile, memory planning, and action. We won't get into the survey uh, because it is just kind of a summary of a whole bunch of stuff. But if you find the subject of LLM-powered agents interesting, you can check us out. Yeah, and uh, I think to me that one of the noteworthy things about this is that we're seeing more and more of these. Like people are trying to kind of wrap their minds around how to think about AI agents. Like what makes them different? How should you classify them? And uh, anyway, they come up with a couple of different categories to sort things into different buckets. So kind of interesting. Um, I don't think this will be the last word on it. So I think if you miss this one, you're okay. We'll be talking about classifying AI agents again soon, I'm sure. And now kicking off our policy and safety section, uh, just one big story here, but it is, I think, a, a big and quite interesting one. UK to spend 100 million pounds in global race to produce AI chips. And so um, right now, the, the UK is making a bunch of moves around this. Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, has made it a clear policy priority to deal with pressing AI safety issues. We have the Global AI Safety Summit coming up in November, which is going to be really cool. Um, and um, yeah, so 100 million pounds. So like putting this in context, this seems to be uh, in a way a response to things like the US CHIPS Act, right? Like this is a famous, um, famous act passed by Congress, $53 billion that the US is putting in its semiconductor industry. And that was considered a bit low. Like there were people who were like, uh, actually, like <laughs> weirdly enough, semiconductor fabs take way more resources than that to set up. It's a super high risk thing, tons of capital expenditures that are required. And so now when you look at this $100 million through that lens, uh, you know, I don't know, what is that? That's like uh, less than 1%. This is, yeah, a fraction of a percent. You know, it's been criticized in a way that I think, yeah, kind of you could argue for, uh, for being too small on the, on the chips, um, uh, chip side. So, you know, it's not a, a huge amount, but uh, every little bit helps, you know, to, to propagate or to promote domestic innovation. That's, that's fine. Um, as an additional measure, unrelated to that, though, the government is also in the advanced stages of ordering up to 5,000 GPUs from NVIDIA. They don't say what kinds of GPUs these are, but I'm guessing it's going to be H100s at this point. Um, that's all part of a big push as well for capacity building within the UK government. One of the big things they're trying to do, including through this, including through their foundation model task force, is build the capacity to train and audit that's an important part, audit powerful scaled models from the big companies. And they've got a special agreement too with a lot of these companies to get access to their scaled models. So this is a big part of their AI safety push. They want interpretability. They want, uh, they want uh, explainability and all these things. So it's going to be really interesting. The UK, they do note, accounts for just 0.5% of global semiconductor sales. So not a huge player to begin with. But um, you know, I think an incremental step, it's fair to say, in the, on the path to the UK trying to establish itself as a major player in AI safety. Yeah, and this is coming on the heels of something else, uh, the 100 million uh, pound investment in the foundation model task force that was also there a little while back. So lots of these initial kind of efforts to figure out where to hand out money from the government in this effort to become a bit of an AI hub in Europe, which I think is an overall trend of the UK, tried to be the country that leads on AI in Europe. 
Next, Meta confirms AI off switch incoming to Facebook, Instagram, and Europe. So the confirmation is that non-personalized content feeds will be available on Facebook and Instagram and VAU to comply with Digital Services Act. And that just means that usually in these uh, platforms, you your feed of content is powered by AI, essentially. It's algorithmic recommendation and sorting. Here, instead, users will have option to view content in chronological order or just based on local popularity. So the AI off switch is maybe less dramatic than it sounds. Uh, interestingly, it will not be made available to users in the US and the UK. Uh, maybe you know it's not great for ads, uh, perhaps. But either way, uh, this kind of is interesting to note that uh, the AI algorithm and uh, you can choose to disable it if you live in Europe. Yeah, I will say this is a sentence that you have to process twice because when you first read it, it says meta confirms AI off switch. And you're just like, holy shit, what the fuck is it? Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, as you said, not as exciting as an off switch for a, an AGI. Um, one of the interesting things that they do flag in the story, and I think is actually quite interesting, is uh, so the right now, the UK is not citizens in the UK are not going to have this off switch. Neither are people in uh, North America, in the US, I presume in Canada as well. This is just for the EU. It's in response to essentially the compliance requirements for EU regulations um, that, in particular, the Digital Services Act, um, that requires basically the ability to switch off what's called personalization. Now, the question is, how long can Meta and other platforms maintain a state of affairs where they're offering this option to EU citizens, but not to folks in the US or UK? Like That's an interesting kind of political pressure that you could imagine uh, that leading to domestically in the US, where people go, well, wait a minute, you've just built this feature. You're literally just choosing not to offer it to us, like you're robbing the American consumer of optionality. that I don't know how how stable that will be long term. This may actually be precedent setting. It may lead. I could see it leading at least to uh, that option being delivered eventually in the U.S. or U.K. Once political pressure kind of starts to mount on that. So anyway, interesting dimension of this, and, and we'll see. Right, we've already seen that happen. Uh, you can blame all these websites having cookie uh, confirmation pages. And the pop-ups, the pop-ups that everyone hates, is for data protection originating with the EU. And uh, yeah, I think you know, personalized news feeds uh, is maybe not the most exciting thing to discuss with respect to AI, given what's been going on. But the EU AI Act is coming, and this is just another display of how impactful these regulations in the EU can be. As you can imagine, if they got Meta to disable personalized content feeds or provide the option to do that, clearly they uh, their kind of AI more. Impressive AI, you know, video processing or large language models, etc., will also be impacted by whatever the AI act contains. Add to the lightning round: Beijing to restrict use of generative AI in online healthcare activities. The Beijing Municipal Health Commission has drafted new rules to restrict the use of generative AI. 
in online healthcare activities, they would prohibit uh, to use AI for automatically generating medical prescriptions and limit its application in other online healthcare services. It also requires medical personnel in the sector to have professional qualifications uh, and uh, various other things. So first time a local government explicitly set limits on the use of generative AI in healthcare uh, after uh, there's already been some similar restriction from central authorities in China. Yeah, and the fact that it's Beijing, you know, you might wonder, well, why the hell uh, are we doing a Last Week in AI podcast episode about what the Beijing Municipal Health Commission wants? I thought you guys had a good show. What happened to the two of you for shame? And I'm sorry, mom, but the reason that I'm doing this is uh, Beijing is actually really important. So uh, Beijing is, of course, the headquarters of it's like it's where the Communist Party is located. Um, it's also home to half of the, the uh, China-developed AI large language model companies. And um, so, so it's absolutely essential. It also serves this important sort of like policy um, precedent-setting role within China. So because Beijing is this very powerful municipal government, because it's the seat of power for the kind of more federal level government, um, people tend to look to it for guidance and things like that. So this is actually probably a, a some kind of indication of what's to come, um, and, uh, and and definitely part of as you said, Andre, this like very broad sweeping uh, set of policy uh, reforms that the Chinese are up to right now. Right, exactly. We have covered recently how there's been a recent uh, regulation on generative AI broadly. So this is a bit of a trend. And as you said, Beijing is very significant. It is the capital of uh, China. It has a population of over 20 million people. So uh, not local is maybe (laughs) not the right term here. And next up, we have Schumer to host AI Forum with CEOs including Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. And so this is on the heels of um, uh, so Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, of course, in the U.S. Senate, um, has been pushing for faster AI regulations, been looking for ways to accelerate uh, his uh, kind of feedback collection from the AI ecosystem. And he's already had um, a bunch of important high-level meetings. Here he's committing to meeting with Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sam Altman as well. Um, that's, I think, kind of interesting, right? Because so we think about the, the folks who are most worried about AI safety in the conventional sense, like Elon Musk has more, it seems, of a weaponization concern. Um, Zuck doesn't seem to really be very prominent on the safety side. And uh, Sam Altman, of course, has made uh, given testimony to, uh, to Congress about the fact that he's really worried about this risk. So it's an interesting set of cast of characters um, at the senior levels of all these labs. I would hope that a lot of these meetings as well, like if I'm the Senate Majority Leader, I would very much hope that that there are going to be meetings as well involving members of the technical safety teams at these labs, not the executives. Um, That is really, really important. I would even say if there's anybody who is listening who is uh, in that orbit, that would actually be the thing to do. You, You tend to get very interesting perspectives when you ping these labs in different places. They are not monoliths. Um, but this is a really interesting effort to gather that kind of information. And uh, the forum is, this is a really bold move. It's, it's a way to accelerate the legislative process um, that recognizes, hey, AI is moving freaking fast and we got to start to do different stuff. So these sort of AI insight forums, as they're being called, 
that uh, that Senate Majority Leader Schumer is setting up are uh, are the mechanism he's chosen. Right. So these will be two three-hour sessions, and uh, besides the CEO's noted distance article, the whole list actually has been released recently, and it is very very industry heavy. So it does have Sam Altman, it has Bill Gates, it has Jensen Huang from Nvidia. Elon Musk, Sadia Nutella from Microsoft, uh, yeah, you know, Meta, Google, Microsoft, Nvidia, Tesla, Palantir, OpenAI, uh, a whole bunch of places. But there are also some non-CEOs. Uh, there's uh, well, there's Jack Clark from Anthropic, who is kind of industry, but also more on the policy side. Uh, there is uh, Deborah Raji, who is a researcher at UC Berkeley, actually the only academic on the list uh, uh, who isn't involved in industry at least. There is uh, Roman Chowdhury, who is the CEO of Human Intelligence, but has been worked in AI ethics quite a bit, uh, was the lead of AI safety and ethics at Twitter. Anyway, so there's been a lot of discussion about this list of how industry heavy it is, how few academics there are. There are some uh, representatives from other groups. There is, for instance, the uh, Randy uh, Weingarten, uh, who is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. A pretty interesting list, and we'll see really what comes out of it in terms of the discussion. But uh, yeah, some people are not happy that it's quite so heavy on CEOs and uh, the the industry perspective yeah yeah you're right like ceos and kind of founder level folks as well um again i think um in my experience and and it's fair to say in the experience of folks who work in this space when you talk to people on the safety teams at these labs you get different stories and those stories tend to be um uh, let's say informed by perspectives that are sometimes less uh directly interested by economic incentives and uh, those perspectives also are very easily dusted over uh, by uh, folks at the executive level. And um, anyway, uh, I, I think I think it would be really interesting to see those perspectives, uh, even in closed hearings, or uh, obviously they're they're kind of in some cases semi whistleblower uh, implications of this stuff. So you want to make sure you have those protections, but you want to make sure these things are informed by all of that. Right. Uh, just to note a couple other names, there's also Charles Rifkin, who is the chairman and CEO of the Motion Picture Association. Uh, there is also Elizabeth Schuler, president of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. So there is a bit of a variety of different uh, constituents uh, or interested parties, for sure. And up next, we have Bletchley Park to host AI safety talks in November. We talked about this kind of global AI safety summit in the UK. This is that. Bletchley Park is this incredibly famous uh, code-breaking, World War II code-breaking, um, or at least anyway, it was where the modern computing era was launched by Alan Turing back in the day. It was, it was initially this place where people came together and tried to crack the famous Nazi Enigma codes. If you've seen um, the, was it the Imitation Game? I think the movie. They do a pretty decent job of covering, a, I think, part of this story. I think they cover the Enigma stuff. Um, but uh, anyway, so it's got tons of history. It's going to be the place where we're going to see uh, world leaders come together to talk about AI safety for the first time, really, in a coherent way. The big question is whether China is going to be invited. Right. So to what extent are they going to be participating? We don't know yet. Um, we, uh, we're also not sure if Chinese companies like Baidu are going to be in attendance. Uh, so that'll be interesting to, uh, to see evolve. 
And um, yeah, it, obviously, China is going to be an important part of the story because if we're going to get to global AI governance, if we're going to have people have been talking about like an IAEA for AI, that's a slightly flawed uh, kind of analogy for this, but it's it's roughly there. Uh, we're going to need China on board, right? We're going to need global governance, and so um, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a big uh, a big part of this. So we'll see what happens here, but it's a very very important event. Almost can't be overstated how uh, how important that summit's going to be in in November. Right. And once again, this goes to show the UK trying to be a notable uh, place for AI. There's really not much known about sort of what is going to happen or come out of this. It's, as you said, the first one of these. So there's going to be talks and probably not much action as a result, but very interesting who will be there and, you know, the extent of international coordination that might arise in the coming years with regards to controlling AI. And last story is about Spain. It has launched an AI regulation agency in bid to become an industry leader. Uh, so they, Spain has launched the Spanish Agency for the Supervision of Artificial Intelligence uh, that aims to ensure that AI development in Spain is inclusive, sustainable, and citizen-centered. Uh, it's part of Spain's national AI strategy. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's kind of a front runner. It's the first European country to establish a special agency for AI. Seems like that will be more and more of a case, uh, going forward. Yeah. It's interesting that it's not folded into, you know, we now have the distinct EU process and now Spain within the EU is kind of setting up its own process. So one thing I'm curious about is what is that interaction going to look like? Like, what, what are the jurisdictions of those two kind of pieces of legislation and, and how are they going to be different? Um, it is also consistent with this trend, right, where countries that don't have large domestic AI labs or, or capabilities tend to turn to regulation as the means by which they can assert some form of leadership or control uh, over the, the course of the direction of the technology. So we'll see if this plays out to their advantage. It, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what happens. We don't have much, much detail right now, but uh, cool to follow. Yep. And on to our last section with only one story this week. We have in synthetic media and art. Google made a watermark for AI images that you can't edit out. So Google DeepMind has developed a tool. A tool. So Google DeepMind has developed a tool called SynthID that can watermark AI-generated images in a way that is imperceptible to humans but easily detectable by AI detection tools. We chatted about a similar tool just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, yeah, this is being rolled out to Google Cloud customers and uh, who use, for instance, the Imagen image generator. Uh, so it's cool to see these kinds of tools, watermarking, becoming more widespread. Uh, I think coming from Google DeepMind, this is hopefully a pretty uh, kind of strong technique that is harder to get around. Yeah, they're really not saying much, are they, about the, the technology itself. This, this thing is very cryptic. It's just sort of like, it's this thing that it resists attempts to like crop and, and expand and transform the images. Um, and it'll still work in those circumstances. But we don't really know what the technique is. Uh, the one thing that they say is that they're inviting people to try to break it. Like It seems clearly to be um, a kind of focal point for them and, and to find out uh, how, how robust this technique is. I wish we had a paper. I, I wish we knew more about it. It's possible that having a paper 
might undermine the technique somehow. I, I really don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, the fact, as you said, that Google DeepMind is on this, I mean, they are absolutely the elite of the elite. If, if they're spending their time on watermarking, um, I, I mean, I suspect, by the way, part of the motivation for that is also policy related. You know, Google DeepMind would love, or Google generally would love to be able to say, hey, look, uh, we're pursuing the development of technologies that help with responsibility that can give policymakers tools to, for example, like do fingerprinting and, and kind of figure out attribution so that we can you know, associate crimes with people or th- things like that if they happen. Um, but uh, anyway, how, how this is actually done, very unclear. Still probably cool technology. That's all we know. Right. Uh, so obviously this is uh, was also announced alongside the other news related to Google. We covered at the very beginning on this episode. So there's nothing rolled out yet. It was announced at the Google Cloud uh, conference, uh, Google Cloud Next conference. Not too much information of it, but... As you said, I think uh, clearly it's in the interests of uh, Google and everyone really for uh, synthetic media to not be used for uh, bad ends. Uh, and that yeah. means that you need to be able to detect if something is AI generated or not. So it's nice to see you know, AI giants <laughs> making it possible to hopefully detect deep fakes. All right. And with that, we are done. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scan Today's Last Week in AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekin.ai. As always, we do love your feedback. Feel free to email us at contact at lastweekin.ai. I do try to at least read them and respond. Sometimes it takes me a while to respond, but I do keep an eye out for them. Also, please subscribe if somehow you aren't, uh, but still listen to this whole episode. And if you are subscribed, feel free to share and rate and so on. But all that aside, please do keep tuning in.